The science that this week's guest has published spans the end members of rivers' morphological spatial scales. Ostrid Blom, professor of civil engineering and geosciences at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, is perhaps best known for her recent work at the 10 to the 5 meter scale, modeling hundreds of kilometers, sometimes for hundreds or thousands of years, to explore the long-term equilibrium states of river responses to human modifications and also to model the alternate potential futures associated with different climate change scenarios and management practices. Most of her recent work, and as you'll hear in our conversation, the work she's most passionate about is that actionable morphological modeling of the Dutch reach of the Rhine that can influence wise and sustainable management. And I've been interested in Dr. Blom's work on the Rhine for a while, partially because of its similarity to the Missouri in the U.S., which is a river of comparable size with comparable human modifications, which is also in sizing. But I first started following Dr. Blom's research over 15 years ago with work she did at the 10 to the minus 2 scale with detailed laboratory experiments on the vertical mixing processes in bed forms composed of a wide range of grain sizes. So we talked about both these scales. We mostly talked about the Rhine because of the river's natural template, the long, long history of human modification, the reach scale incision, and contemporary management efforts on that system are all so interesting. And we covered some fundamental processes at that scale, including how gravel sand transitions evolve on engineering and geologic time horizons on a river that size, the impacts of incision on a large multi-use waterway, and some of the management practices targeted to mitigate these impacts. But we also downscaled a little to talk about her early lab work because it really has affected the way I look at bimodal rivers and gravel sand transitions. I'm Stanford Gibson, the Sediment Transport Specialist at the Corps of Engineers Hydrologic Engineering Center, and this week on the RSM River Mechanics Podcast, a conversation with Dr. Ostrid Blom. Ostrid Blom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So how did you get interested in rivers? Well, I studied civil engineering at uh, Delft University of Technology. Okay. And uh, I wasn't quite happy from the start. So I considered moving to applied mathematics and geophysics. And, uh, but I, th- I thought, well, maybe working at an oil company is also not my, my dream job. Right. And then at some point uh, later on during the studies, I had some river dynamics courses. And then I got really interested I had a nice professor, Huib de Vriend. At some point, he asked, hey, Astrid, do you want to do a master's thesis on, on river dynamics? And I said, yes, I would like to do that. And we were talking about possible topics. And at that time, so that was 1996, people were moving toward numerical modeling, and most of the students would be interested in numerical modeling. And then he said, well, but you know what? If you want to have some impact, then analytical modeling is really... Oh, interesting. And 1D modeling and analytical modeling is, is really in nice way forward. So if you want to have some impact, then I would not choose for the standard numerical efforts that students tend to choose. So that was a nice coach. Yeah. So you were doing analytical and 1D numerical modeling from the beginning, even before you went into the lab for your PhD. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So during my master's thesis, I studied the meandering behavior of the Allier River in France. And there was another advisor, Alessandra Corsato, and she had developed a model that was called Meandras. So I applied that to the Allier River and checked whether migration rates that were produced by Meandras, whether they matched with field-based values. And you couldn't have them match. You could make them match. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> by adjusting erodibility parameters of the soil. Right. 
So we created patches and we could make it match, but there was no relation between the final outcome of erodibility with you know the physical properties of, right. of the soil. I find you can often hindcast meander modeling, but forecasting is very difficult. Yeah. So what's the central management issue on the rivers in the Netherlands that has motivated your work? So during my PhD, I was more focused at smaller scale yeah. things, and we'll probably address that later. We'll get to that, yeah. But later on, I moved toward larger scale mm-hmm. problems. And this is where my real passion is, right. larger scale problems. You know, channel profile issues. How do channels respond to anthropogenic measures and, and climate change, for instance? That's my, do you call it topic of, of love? Yes, okay. <laughs> That's where my passion, passion is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that also relates well with current problems in, okay. in water management. So one of the bigger problems in Dutch water management is the current channel bed erosion. Okay. It's a problem that has been ongoing for decades. It's not a new problem, but the problems related to it, they have increased with time. Yeah. One of the most prominent ones is that certain parts of the channel bed, they don't erode okay. because they are man-made fixed beds or they have a natural tendency to be hard to erode. Yeah. And then with the surrounding bed that does erode, those fixed beds they tend to stick out more and more from the bed. And that's problematic for navigation also, especially during drought. We've done a lot of work on the Missouri, which is also incising. But this is distinct about your process because differential incision is the big navigation issue. Yes, it's because some parts, they don't erode Mm -hmm. together with the surrounding bed, and then they locally reduce the flow depth. Because the base level is changing with incision, but those high points remain. They remain, yeah. So those are layers of boulder-type stones, and there's filter layers underneath, so there is no sediment being washed out from underneath, which would make it sink. Right. So they don't sink. They stay in place, and they have been constructed in outer bands of the Rhine. So there's a few of those. One near Nijmegen, there's one near St. Andries, a bit more downstream, one close to the border with Germany. And then there is a different type of construction with bandway weirs, they call them, okay. sort of groins on the yeah. bed, channel bed. But it's, it has the same purpose. So they are constructed in the outer bands, in relatively sharp bands, and they create a locally higher bed level compared to the situation before. Okay. And uh, the situation with the fixed bed changes the secondary flow in those sharp bands, and the purpose is to make the inner band deeper. Oh, okay. And this is actually also what they do. Yeah. So they make the inner band deeper. And the benefit of that is the navigational width increases. Okay. So for navigation, it becomes easier to pass those sharp bends okay. and to pass each other. Yeah. So that's the purpose. And this is also what they do well, those fixed bends. So they are quite successful in what they're intended to do. But there's some side effects. The overall erosion, together mm-hmm. with the fixed beds, of course, becoming more and more problematic. And so they get more perched. Yeah. They stick out more and more. And there's also the problem of a large downstream erosion pit. Are there other infrastructure impacts of a broad base level lowering of the river? Another problem is the reduced channel floodplain connection, of course. The participation of the floodplains in transporting the flow downstream yeah. gets smaller and smaller with time. So that has groundwater consequences and ecological consequences. For that reason, side channels are being constructed in order to increase that dynamics in the floodplains. Another problem related to the overall erosion is the fact that there's a lot of channel crossing cables and pipelines. Oh. And their cover is getting to a critically low (laughs) value. Yes. So, of course, the Dutch water management authorities, they need to do something about it. So either those 
cables and pipelines need to be lowered right. and the cover needs to be restored. I don't think that anything critical has happened yet, yeah. but they are keeping track of the locations and covering or reconstructing the cover. But they're also considering to lower those cables and pipelines. So there's a lot of things related to it. Another problem is water intake mm -hmm. structures. So with the overall erosion, also water levels become lower with time. So water intakes also experience trouble. What are some of the causes of the long-term incision? That's a good question. Yeah. In our research, we haven't tried to actually pinpoint the relative contribution to each of the causes. But the main cause, I think pretty much everyone agrees about that, is the channelization of the Rhine. Okay. So this holds for the German Rhine, for the Dutch Rhine. Mm -hmm. The river has been narrowed quite a bit. Channel shortening is also some bands have been cut off. And so that would decrease the overall slope. Narrowing, yes. Yeah. That would decrease the overall slope and create erosion. Channel shortening it doesn't decrease the equilibrium slope, but it does create erosion. Yeah. Because you make it shorter and then the base right. level decreases for the upstream part. Then dredging is also part of the picture, especially in the 80s, 90s. A lot of dredging took place. And if you look at the bed level profiles and how they evolved mm -hmm. with time, you see a lot of lowering in, in the 80s and 90s. By now, that it's now forbidden to take out sediment. From the river. From the river. This so is one of the ways that the Netherlands is different than the United States <laughs> still. <laughs> it doesn't hold for all of the yeah. places, so there's still some contracts with okay. dredging companies and mining companies, but they're reducing. But in general, it's forbidden, so the sediment that is dredged out for places where it's needed because of shallow yeah. areas, then those areas are being dredged for navigation, and then the sediment needs to be dumped back in the system at another location. And not too far from the original location. So it may be a sort of conveyor belt. I see. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So can you just tell us a little bit about kind of your research program? Big picture, what do you and your team do day in and day out to try to evaluate the long-term morphology and evolution of the river in response to management options? The research focus now is, has become a bit bimodal. So on the one hand, we're focused on studying river response to anthropogenic interventions. Mm -hmm. One of the measures that have been implemented is longitudinal training walls okay. in the Netherlands. And they have been constructed and they replace over a limited reach so far, but they replace groins. And their aim is to reduce friction. If you remove the groins, of course, you have less friction during yeah. peak flows. Those locations, the channel is also narrowed, so during base flow conditions, flow depth is a little higher, oh. so that would help navigation during drought conditions. A longitudinal training wall will break the channel into kind of two sub-channels. Yeah, sub so you have a sort of side channel. Okay. But it's still different from a side channel because during peak flows, those walls are overtopped. Oh. And there's a weir with a lower entrance level at the upstream end. So it's a managed compound channel, kind of. Yes. Okay. But with entering flow and exiting flow okay. along the entire wall during peak flow conditions. Okay. So during low flow conditions, it's acting like a side channel. So it's separated. But uh, during peak flow conditions, there is this continuous exchange of water, depending on the relative difference in flow depth between okay. the two. Another purpose of those longitudinal training walls, so I mentioned flow depth reduction yeah. during peak flows, flow depth increase during low flows. 
and reduction of, of channel bed incision, so mitigation of channel bed incision. And this has to do with the fact that you take out a certain share of the discharge and let it pass through the side channel, and that would locally reduce the sediment transport capacity, and then the equilibrium slope would increase, and you would be able to mitigate. Excellent. So it sounds like a pretty ideal situation, and so far, I've worked with Matt Sopiga. He's now a postdoc at South Carolina, but he worked with us as a postdoc, and he studied the impact of uh, those longitudinal training walls on the um, channel bed level and grain size and he actually found that they seem to help and they have been constructed in i think it was around 2014 2015 so the measurement record after construction is still fairly short you know given that morphodynamic change is slow so it's actually still a snapshot (laughs) but the first impression is that they may have a positive impact on mitigating channel body erosion great and then there's also ecological benefits because it seems that fish find those side channels very convenient yes. and they are less troubled by the sound of vessels. Okay. Like uh, it's a peaceful. Yeah, it's a refuge and they use it as a breeding location and they take shelter there. So it has several benefits, it seems. And then by some, uh, they are considered to be green measures, but I'm, I don't know about that because it's still a pretty fixed <laughs> structure. It's an engineering solution. Yeah. It's still an engineering solution. So I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know if I would call it a green green solution or a nature-based solution. <laughs> but uh, So I feel like I've been at conferences where you or others have talked about the Rhine and they've showed these big barges of gravel and cobbles and have talked about nourishment. Is that also something that you look at? Yes, we do. And actually, the German water management authorities, they have started adding sediment much earlier than the Dutch water management authority. So in Germany, they've started artificially adding sediment to the system since, I think, 78, to be precise, 1978. After the construction of the most downstream dam, the Ivesheim Dam, they experienced severe degradation downstream from Mm -hmm. the dam, started adding sediment. They started adding sediment that was quite coarse, And then they found out that, okay, if we do that, then we actually not only displace the problem more downstream, Uh because locally we reduce the sediment transport capacity, but we also enhance the erosion because we make the bed surface so coarse that locally the sediment transport capacity gets too small. Help me understand that. So the trouble with adding very coarse sediment, coarser than the original bed sediment in a location, is that you locally reduce the sediment transport capacity to below the level that it had before. Before because, adding the be, sediment. Because the roughness is higher? or Because the uh, grain size is larger than the original bed surface sediment at that location. Oh, and it's stealing some of the capacity. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, the yeah. sediment transport capacity gets lower. Yes. And then that means that the implication of that is that the sediment supply to the reach right downstream gets reduced compared oh, to the situation before. And right. you actually enhance erosion downstream. Well, you mitigate it in that spot but you but system-wide system-wide you've created a bigger problem yeah that's a yeah. bad that's so, a bad so, day. yeah and then they quickly learned that it's best to add sediment that has a similar grain size distribution as as the oh. local bed surface sediment so they learned this lesson quite fast and then they have a dual approach to adding sediment so with pretty localized erosion they add pretty coarse sediment mm-hmm. to fill the erosion okay fill the scour And then they also have a different type of adding sediment where they try to add sediment that can actually be transported by the stream in order to not disturb the system too much 
So one is kind of just a, filling a holes. fixed protection, filling yeah. holes, and the other is a dynamic adding a, a source term to a system that maybe is supply limited. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that has a smaller grain size distribution, and it fits the system in a better way. And they have been quite successful in, in mitigating channel bed erosion. Oh, wow. And then, of course, in the Netherlands, you know, with our level of channel bed erosion, we looked into their practices and, and we started adding sediment as well, but it's still in the form of pilot projects. So okay. trying to learn from... When you say with your level of erosion, is your level of erosion higher or lower than Germany? Currently, yeah, much higher. Much higher, okay. Yeah, yeah, because they have been pretty successful in, in, okay. in stopping the tunnel bit erosion. Their approach is also very oriented at where problems arise. So okay. if they have local erosion in places, they add sediment in those okay. places. And if the problem holds, then they also halt yeah. adding sediment. So that's, uh, I think, an, an efficient procedure. And we have done two pilot projects in 2016 and 2019 in the Netherlands. So in the upstream part of the Dutch Rhine, in order to learn from yeah, how should we actually do it, you learn about the logistics. Okay. <laughs> the logistics are often harder than the science. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> what type of sediment do you need? Yeah. And where do you place it? Mm-hmm. How doesn't it hurt navigation yeah. too much? So yeah. it's being dumped in outer bands that are deeper. Oh, okay. How fast does the sediment migrate? Is it not too immobile? All of those questions. I think it's also difficult with those pilot projects. I think it's difficult to actually measure if it's beneficial or because the signature and the noise are exactly. not, not in scale. Yeah, so the natural variation of things is so large. Yeah. And you don't have a well-defined reference case, right? Yeah. Because the system is also, it's also eroding, so it's changing with time. So so what do you take as a reference? I find that tricky. With nourishments, there is a complication. As I just explained, if you add sediment that is on the coarse side of things, of the spectrum, then you can actually enhance erosion. And then it is still something that you can solve by spreading the sediment and take a certain spatial choose for a certain spatial density Mm -hmm. of the locations where you add the sediment. Then you can counteract that enhance the erosion downstream. I try to advocate doing those calculations beforehand to get an order of magnitude impression of the response that you can expect. Of course, typically you have sediment available from a certain spot, for instance, when there is a, a port being dug. If you would, by coincidence, have coarse sediment available, then you can use it in that way by spreading the sediment a bit over the domain that is problematic. If you were to have only fine sediment, relatively fine, with fine I mean finer than the the local bed server sediment, that can be problematic because adding fines to a system that is relatively coarse can make the coarse sediment more mobile. mobile. (laughs) And this is that hiding exposure effect. That's right. And then you can actually enhance erosion as well, rather than mitigated. So it sounds like one of the takeaways is gradation matters. Matching the bed as closely as possible is... That's the easiest solution. The first order, where you actually can get this amount of material, determines what grain size you have to work with. Yes. Yeah, because, of course, sediment is expensive. Yeah. Also because it's being used for different purposes. And and, and the building, construction industry, and, and also the mining areas... You know, used to be close to our rivers or in the floodplains. 
we don't want to do it anymore because yeah. it enhances erosion. So if you were to have only f- a relatively fine sediment, still sandy yeah. sediment, because if it's wa- too fine, it becomes wash load and it doesn't help mm-hmm. at all. But if it's sandy type of sediment, then you can counterbalance that effect of increased mobility of the coarse sediment by adding a sufficient volume of sand. But that would also ask for, you know, some broad brush computations beforehand. That would be my suggestion. So speaking of computations, you do a lot of, you know, 1D and analytical modeling of the system. You know, maybe the first thing I ever learned about rivers in freshman geology is that they have a concave profile. But one of the things that you've demonstrated is that the incision on the Rhine has a concave profile as well. Can you tell us kind of why that's unique and why it's happening? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it made us think quite a bit, you know, why, why is this extra incision, why doesn't it lead to an overall or a slope reduction everywhere? Because right. this is what you would expect, a slope reduction. The whole thing would drop, but instead kind of the middle of the river is dropping more. Yeah. So we see that slope reduction in the downstream part, in the Dutch part for sure, and a little bit more upstream. But downstream from, well, let's say Bonn, you see a slope increase. Mm-hmm. And that was unexpected to us. We think it has to do with the presence of bedrock at that location in combination with the flow duration curve, so the variable flow rate. But it's still a bit on the hypothesis. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, we've tried to test that hypothesis. It's not that we found a negative result, but right. student projects in All that right. area haven't worked out yet. So it's still a, a hypothesis, but it's an interesting problem because yeah. you would expect, okay, so that bedrock, okay, it may in size, but that's on a geological scale. time scale. That's so right. on the engineering time scale that we're interested in with these problems that you know, we can neglect that. Mm-hmm. And then you would expect the downstream channel to erode like this, and yeah. maybe you would expect a step. And that is clearly something that we do not see. So I'm interested in the problem, but we haven't been able it's to solve it yet. <laughs> Unsolved. So you did another set of experiments in one of your papers that's similar to a thought experiment I give to my students. And so let me just kind of lay it out. You have two simulations with the same mean flow, but one of them has more variability, which means that the peaks are higher and the troughs are lower. So the same total volume that runs yeah. through your model, but one of them just is closer to the mean. What did you find with increasing the variability and why? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So what we find based on our analytical modeling is that the situation with the larger variability of the flow rate, same mean, same volume, the case with the larger variability of the flow rate would lead to a smaller equilibrium slope. A smaller equilibrium slope, which and this means has to more do erosion. Until it reaches that until it reaches yes. that equilibrium slope. Yes. So you would expect a lower bed level profile. And that has to do with the fact that for those conditions, you're able to determine a a channel-forming discharge. For the case with the larger variability of the flow rate, that channel-forming discharge would be larger than the case with a constant mean discharge or a smaller variability. Because it's not driven by the mean flow. The mean flow is lower than the channel-forming discharge. The mean flow is, yeah, is I think I can say always, is always lower than the channel-forming discharge. Right. And that has to do with the nonlinear relationship between uh, the sediment transport rate and the discharge. So the larger, the share of the larger discharges, they have a relatively large contribution in transporting the sediment downstream. So in assuming those cases have the same net sediment supply from the upstream part of the basin, and the larger discharges transporting more sediment, it would mean that you have, for the case with a larger variability, you have a larger channel-forming discharge and a smaller slope would surface to transport 
that sediment downstream. Because the larger flows do disproportionately more work. Right, right. So speaking of channel forming discharge, you have a little bit of a different take on the channel forming discharge. Can you tell us a little bit about what's the slope equivalent discharge and why do you use it? I'm not the first, you know, working with this approach. It's an interesting approach because it really helps you to figure out how channels respond to things. If you take on such an analytical approach, it's actually the approach itself that shows that you can come up with an equivalent discharge. Okay. So the physical meaning of that equivalent discharge or the slope equivalent discharge, if you have two cases, one with a constant discharge, one with the variable discharge, and the variable discharge with a given sediment supply creates a certain slope, then the channel forming discharge is the constant discharge that would provide the same equilibrium slope as that full hydrograph as would the full do. Hydrograph. So, so that's the definition, that's our definition of a channel forming discharge. So it's comparable, because I think that generally when I think about the channel forming discharge, I'm thinking about the shape of the channel. And so it's the flow that gives the same shape of the channel as the full hydrograph. But it sounds like you're saying, yeah, but the shape of the channel maybe isn't the most fundamental thing. Maybe the more fundamental thing is the slope of the channel. So what flow would give you the same slope as the full hydrograph? Yeah, so it's because we're biased. In the Netherlands, we're dealing with engineered channels. <laughs> right. And channel width is set. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, the- so it's not a degree of freedom. <laughs> and so it also means that unless you would have sediment deposition at the sides and that would narrow down the right, channel, but right. that typically doesn't happen. So channel width is set. It's not a degree of freedom. And we don't need to solve for the equilibrium channel width. It's set. And if channel width is set, then... Uh, you remain with two degrees of freedom, which is the most important one, slope, and the other one is the bad surface texture. And channel width gets out of the picture. You don't need to solve for it. And it also closes, the fact that it's already set, uh, closes the set of equations. You don't need a closure equation that is typically needed when you deal with natural channels. Mm. So I'm biased. <laughs> biased toward the, the engineered channels. The engineered channels. Yes. That makes sense. It's not the type of channel that I like most, but... <laughs> it's the one you work with. It's, I work with that a lot as well. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's the type of channels that we have to, yeah, that we deal with. So classic channel forming discharge theory assumes that the channel shape is a degree of freedom. But yeah. when the channel shape isn't free, then either your bed gradation or your slope is going to have to be the response. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I think channel adjustment will be very different for natural channels Mm. for the reason that with width adjustment there's way less sediment volume needed to Mm. you know to get rid of in order to allow for that change for that adjustment toward the new equilibrium state compared to a situation of slope adjustment and so if you think about how much erosion just in mass is required to get to an equilibrium state widening is a lot less than exactly exactly yeah oh wow so I think, but that's another hypothesis. And so it would happen on a much shorter time scale as well. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. And that is why I think that natural channels will more likely adjust through width adjustment than through slope adjustment. And then in those situations, the slope may be more governed by valley slope mm. rather than by the typical slope adjustments that we see in engineer channels. Okay. So another thing that I think has emerged from your literature in the Rhine, and you've looked at other places, is the gravel sand transition, which is one of my favorite things about rivers. Can you just tell us a little bit about what's a gravel sand transition? Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics as well. A gravel sand transition is typically a reach 
not a location, but a reach where the channel bed transitions from being dominated by gravel to a channel bed being covered by sand. That transition or that reach can be short, but typically it's pretty long. Okay. Several tens of kilometers. Oh, wow. And such a transition in bed surface grain size or representative bed surface grain size typically goes together with a slope change, but the slope transition can also show a spatial lag. So this is interesting because the two systems where I've studied gravel sand transitions, I would say that it happens in tens of meters. So what is it about the systems that you've looked at, you think, where it evolves over a longer range? What we see, for instance, for, for the Rhine River, we see that the stretch of that transition is fairly long and that it also extends with time. My ideas about it is that, you know, a gravel sand transition, its natural behavior is that it migrates downstream. There are several reasons why it can halt, right? Because subsidence or delta progradation or... But there has to be some sort of extrinsic factor, otherwise it has to move forward. That is what I believe, yes. Can you tell us why? Because until I got into your literature, I think I would have thought of them as static features. Can you tell us why they should be moving? Well, on an engineering timescale, they are static. But I think that on a longer timescale, I think they tend to move. What I know, for instance, about the Rhine channel bed grain size, that the, the Niederrhein also used to be. So this is the part of the Rhine, a little bit more upstream, okay. right upstream from the German-Dutch border. It used to be... a Sandbed river. Okay. Now it's a gravel bed river. And that would make sense, you know, yeah. if you consider that time scale of migration of the gravel sand transition. But what we see is that also already the major part of the Dutch Rhine has become a gravel bed river. People still tend to think of the Waal branch of the Rhine as a sandbed river. Oh, really? But a, a, quite a large part of it is now a gravel bed river. What I believe about gravel sand transitions is that when they get closer and closer to the location base level is imposed, their migration speed gets smaller and smaller. Okay. And also the slope change between the sandbed ridge and the gravel bed ridge gets smaller and smaller. At some point, what I think is that the gravel is able to overpass uh, the front of the gravel sand transition and remain mobile in the sandbed reach. This may have to do with the increased mobility of gravel in sandbed reaches. Because if a gravel particle gets entrained onto a sandbed reach, it's It has it's a prone. relatively ha- higher mobility because yeah. of hiding exposure. So I think once that slope change gets relatively small, and the slope change gets smaller with the prograding uh, gravel sand transition, so once that slope change, slope transition between the gravel bed reach and the sand bed reach gets small enough, I think gravel is able to overtake the front, remain mobile in the sand bed reach, and that would extend the downstream transport of the gravel that continues in the sand bed reach. That would make the transition smooth. All right. So this is what I think is the mechanism of that creates smooth so you essentially, you essentially have this gravel wedge that over a longish time scale came down through Germany into the Netherlands, but the rate slowed and the slope transition started to smooth as it got closer to base level. That's what I believe. It's not easy to confirm. That, right. But the uh, gravel has to go somewhere. It either has to move forward yeah. or it needs to trundle along the sand bed. Yeah. And by its migration downstream, of course, part of the gravel also gets deposited in the gravel bed reach, right? Because there's also some accommodation space. That's right. 
So part of the gravel is lost or deposited in the gravel bed ridge. But the part of the gravel that reaches the front, at some point it will be able to overtake the front. That's what I think. But there are several theories huh? yeah. about gravel sand transitions, and, and not everyone agrees with, right. uh, with and, these ideas. Okay, so it seems then that there's some similarities between our biographies, because I'm also a one-dimensional modeler, but I did a laboratory kind of sabbatical, I guess you would say, for my dissertation. I did my dissertation in the laboratory, and that's where I first became familiar with your work, because I was doing vertical sorting work right. just as you were publishing your vertical sorting work. And so it was I was delighted, because I saw the only other... I, I saw you were in there with your box and your, your wedge, and I thought, oh, someone else is doing these measurements. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you were looking for in the laboratory when you did take that time to kind of downscale? What was the question that you were asking? We were mostly interested in coming up with improved sediment conservation models compared to what was out there. So what was out there was Hirano, mm-hmm. the Hirano type of mm-hmm. models. So Hirano type of models, they are sediment conservation models that can be used if you deal with a model that wants to treat mixed-sized sediment and you use it instead of the external equation. So you need to define an active layer that has mobile sediment and uh, that part of the sediment interacts with the flow. But this active layer of sediment that provides a sediment that can be reworked by the flow, uh, there's this discrete transition between the sediment that is interacting with the flow and the underlying sediment, the substrate. It's a step function. Yeah, it's a step. One gradation in your active layer and then another gradation below it. Yeah. And they can be very different. And it's a man-made thing, right? That active layer. Yeah. That active layer. It doesn't, you don't find it in nature. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And there's no discrete level Uh where the sediment no longer interacts with the flow. It simply doesn't exist. So Jan Ribrink, who was one of my advisors during my PhD thesis project, he had already worked on, you know, on those ideas and came up with a probability density function of active bed elevations. And then I continued his work and made the description of the sediment and how it interacts with the flow even more continuous than what he did. So... The focus was not so much on improving, or not, actually not at all, on improving sediment transport relations. Mm-hmm. I've always thought that that would be beyond my <laughs> capabilities, but maybe also a bit of interest, yeah. because there's so many sediment transport relations out there, so it, it I gave just, up. It just seems like a crowded space. It's crowded. <laughs> yeah. It's too crowded, and I think that personally I can make a bigger impact yeah. or deliver more more relevant insights if I work on a different topic. So we focused on improving sediment conservation models, made them continuous, also working together with Gary Parker. And it's funny because we're here meeting at the RCM meeting in Illinois, and my collaboration with Gary Parker started at the very first RCM meeting that was held in Genova in 1999. Oh, wow. So I was, I think, the second person in that conference that presented, and I was a young PhD <laughs> student, pretty nervous. I presented my work, you know, with the boxes, the, uh-huh. uh, the results on the samples, and oh, and the PDFs of active bed elevations. He was supposed to give a keynote talk, but after he had heard my presentation and after we discussed, he kind of figured out, oh, yeah, 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 it all needs to be uh, continuous. And then he, within that week, that very week of the conference, he developed the, the material for the Parker Payola Leclerc paper. Oh, my goodness. 
uh, in a week, and he uh, just <laughs> threw threw away his keynote material, and he gave a talk on the material for that paper. And the material and he developed that week based that week, on your talk. Overnight, <laughs> over the four nights of the conference, he focused on plain bad conditions, yeah. but still with a continuous descriptions and a PDF probability density function of active bad elevations. Is the idea that there isn't a step function, even in exactly. numerically, that the active layer is actually a probability distribution function of erosion depth, essentially? Yeah. Yeah. And he just gave that. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And that was the start of our collaboration. Yeah. He became one of my promoters. I don't know if yeah. that's an English phrase, but. Yeah, yeah. advisors, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Gary became one of my promoters. And that interaction was wonderful. <laughs> so, um, and, and so I extended that, that work to the case of dunes, river dunes. Okay. That was a very beneficial collaboration. And so I think that one of the most interesting things from your flume work is that when I think of vertical sorting, and we talked to Elaine as well this week, and he does a lot of vertical sorting. And I generally think of vertical sorting as fining in the downward direction. It's coarse on the top, it's finer down. And that is not exactly the story you tell. Can you tell us a little bit of what are the conditions that cause coarsening in the downward vertical direction? Yeah, so the situation with uh, river dunes is different from a plain bed situation. So with a plain bed situation, you typically have a mobile armor, and that mobile armor is created mostly for the fact that the coarser sediment is less mobile than the Mm -hmm. finer sediment, and the channel tends to compensate for that smaller mobility by creating a larger abundance of coarse sediment at the bed surface. So this is the course of the formation of a a typical armor layer. In the case of bed forms, the situation is different. So... Sediment is mobilized over the stoss phase of bed forms, and Mm -hmm. then it reaches the crest of the bed form with a steep leaf phase where the flow separates and forms an an eddy. And then when the sediment reaches the leaf phase, it builds up on top of the leaf phase, and at some point it gets unstable and an avalanche gets initiated. In that process of sediment avalanching down the leaf phase, the coarser sediment tends to find lower positions on average, than the finer sediments. Oh. So you get this very neat vertical sorting pattern, uh, and it originates at the front, at the steep leaf face of the bed forms. So it typically forms uh, with those steep leaf faces. In the field, the leaf faces may be less uh, steep than, than in the lab uh, because of suspended load. And then that mechanism of avalanching and also the vertical sorting is less dominant. And so if you were to take a core then, you would see the coarser particles kind of buried deeper than the exactly. finer particles. Exactly. So this you would see in the core. Even if you take a core over the stoss phase, yeah. yeah, that sediment at some point got deposited over the leaf phase. So that vertical sorting pattern you also find when you take a sample on the stoss phase. I feel like I think of your papers when I'm actually at gravel sand transitions, because I think that I see this process most often in the field when you are starting to get an excess of sand, but there's still a lot of gravel in the system. And it looks like a sand bed, except in the troughs. And you can see in the troughs that the troughs are gravel. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we have a couple minutes. And so I'd love to just end with the purpose of this podcast is we're just trying to get some of the basic ideas of river mechanics out to new practitioners. But we also are asking, is there something that you wish you knew when you were just kind of starting out? Is there something about rivers or the process of becoming a river mechanics specialist that if you could actually go back in time and tell your younger self something about how you became successful in this field, what what would you say? 
uh, if I could provide an advice to myself in in a younger version, <laughs> I think I would I would say you know just do what you love to do. If your passion is with you know with larger scale dynamics, go do it. Try to find nice nice collaborators that really add to your own expertise, mm -hmm. but also that are also nice and pleasant people. <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely true. Uh, and that makes some work so much fun. Yeah. I think I've been lucky in that respect mm -hmm. to have been able to have worked with, with people like Gary Parker mm -hmm. and Rika Viparelli, also with my PhD students. So I enjoy, enjoy that a lot. I think that would be my advice. Well, Astrid Blom, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate Astrid finding a window at an RCEM meeting that was full of leadership responsibilities for her and also packed with presentations from her lab to talk to us about her work. The next episode is something of an experiment, but I hope it's as fun to listen to as it was to record. I got together with my buddy Jim, who is actually Dr. Jim Seligan, Corps of Engineers Sediment Subject Matter Expert at the Detroit District, and we held a classic paper draft where we discussed some of the seminal literature in our field in the somewhat familiar podcast framework of a competitive draft that I've never seen unfold quite the way this one did. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with that one. These are informal conversations, and the views expressed do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers or the institutions or centers of the guests or host. This episode was edited by Mike Loretto, who also wrote and recorded the music. I'm Stanford Gibson, and this is the RSM River Mechanics Podcast, which is funded by the RSM in that title, the Corps of Engineers Regional Sediment Management R&D Program. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.